We thank you that in the plan of redemption from before even time began, that you had the perfect means whereby this world and all lost sinners who will repent and believe in the name of Jesus Christ, the entirety of the elect would be ransomed and redeemed and reconciled to you. <clears throat> Lord, we acknowledge that the very means of this could not have happened, could not be ours were it not for God himself setting, veiling his eternal glory, his pre-incarnate glory and stooping low, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and taking on the weight of our sin upon Calvary itself, all the while proclaiming that the kingdom of God had come. This, of course, is our beloved Savior, Jesus Christ, who endured the tree on our behalf, who has made a curse for us, who is lifted up just as the serpent was on the pole in the wilderness, that all who look unto him, that all who lift up their eyes unto the crucified Messiah might be saved. Emmanuel, God with us, became man that we might be reconciled to a holy God. We thank you, Lord, for the power of the message of the, of the whole of Scripture. We pray now as we turn to the whole counsel of your word, or even just a part here or there, that the pages of Revelation might be more open to us by the Spirit's use of the proclamation of the Word this morning. I pray that you would nourish our souls by the bread of life, the Word of God, Christ Himself revealed in His Holy Scripture. May He reinforce our souls against any adversity that we face in this life. I pray that your Word would go forth with power, authoritatively calling the lost unto repentance and faith in Jesus Christ alone. And I pray that the announcement of the soon return of the King of Kings to judge the world rightly and to judge the peoples in righteousness and equity would cause the fear of the Lord to rise in the hearts of a generation who is obtuse to the truth that there is a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. And it is appointed once for a man to die and after that the judgment. O Lord, sharpen our senses to realize the most important truths of all of life and eternal life as we turn to your word and equip us to share these with others by the power of the Spirit. We thank you for this time we have together. May you be glorified in and through it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> what a great privilege and blessing it is to gather with the saints and to worship the Lord together. Let us turn to his scriptures now in considering again Psalm 98 today. Last week we had an exposition of Psalm 98, which was the theme of our sermon under the title, two possible ones, Receive Your King or Nations and Nature Sing. We remarked how the background of the song, the hymn, the Christmas hymn, Joy to the World, draws its inspiration from this text. This morning I'd like to explore how many passages of Scripture, many songs through the ages, also draw their inspiration from Psalm 98. The title of this morning's sermon is Song for the Ages. Psalm 98 does not stand alone, independent as a segment or a installation in the Psalter, but it indeed informs and inspires, it undergirds, and is echoed by numerous songs all through history, the history of redemption, and all through the scriptures. 
The aim of our message today, therefore, is to tune our ears to the echoes of Psalm 98 through covenant history, that we might hear the echoes of this psalm and its message and its themes throughout covenant history. We'll reference three eras this morning, the Old Covenant, the Incarnation, and the future of the New Covenant. Would you stand with me out of reverence for God's Word today? And let us listen again as the Word of God is proclaimed in our hearing this amazing song, Psalm 98. Here is the Holy Word of God, a psalm. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done marvelous things. His right hand and His holy arm have worked salvation for Him. The Lord has made known His salvation. He has revealed His righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered His steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Verse 4, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre and with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Verse 7. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. For He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. <clears throat> Truly, Psalm 98 is a song for the ages. This is proved in the Holy Scriptures by parallels throughout the text, and we'll reference several of them this morning. The primary parallel passages we will consider as an accompaniment to our message on Psalm 98 last week will come from 1 and 2 Chronicles, the book of Luke chapters 1 and 2, and Revelation 3 chapters, Select passages from 5, 14, and 15. Psalm 98 contains, as we remarked last week, three sections distinguished by theme and tense. Three themes and three tenses. Uh, young people, do you know what tense is? It's a reference to time. There are certain things that happen in the past, certain things that happen right now in the present, and certain things that will happen in the future. And so in the English language, that which we refer to in the past is the past tense. That which, we, that which we speak of happening now is the present tense. And that which will happen in the future is future tense. These three tenses, past, present, and future, distinguish three categories of Psalm 98. We referenced that last week. Verses 1 through 3 mark occasions for praise and references to past tense examples of the marvelous things Yahweh the King has done. Notice, for He has done marvelous things. Is that past tense, present, or future, young people? This phrase, He has done marvelous things. Does that speak to things in the past, the present, or the future? Past? Past is correct. The Lord has made known His salvation. Again, past. He has revealed His righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered His steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. So you see multiple references to the past, 
marvelous things that Yahweh, again, the Lord, the King, has accomplished. Next section, verses 4 through 6, are a present tense call to praise with instrumentation and joyous song. Verse 4, in light of this, the call goes forth, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises. When? Right now. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre. With trumpets and the sound of the horn, verse 6. Make a joyful noise before the Lord, before the King, the Lord. And hear this call to worship, this call to praise, this accompaniment of instruments and the songs of hearts of joy as people rejoicing and even all creation is a present tense command. Thus, verses 4 through 9, our present tense call to worship. And then we have section 3. This praise and instrumentation and joyous song closes in verses 7 through 9, extending the call to worship to realms of praise, even all creation itself, across all, across all the things that are made. And finally, the psalmist declares in verse 9, He comes to judge the earth, speaking of Yahweh, the great king. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. So one more time, young people, does this refer to a past event, a present event, or a future event? He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness. Is that not future? That is correct. Good job. Before the Lord, for he comes, we are to worship him as the judge of the earth for the things that he has done, Marvelous things indeed. We are to praise Him right now on account of these, and we are to acknowledge things that He will do in the future. Namely, He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. The coming of earth's true judge is yet future in some sense, even for us today. We think of the second coming of Christ and the inauguration in full, the full consummate establishment of His kingdom. The future tense coming of earth's true judge who will rule with perfect righteousness and equity. Here's my case this morning. My thesis, what I wanted to want to submit to you is a structure for our study today. The tense structure that is the shape of Psalm 98 in that it references past events, gives a present call and references things yet future. This demonstrates to us it serves to illustrate by poetic device the sovereignty of God over history, the sovereignty of God over time, and the activity of God in history. God is sovereign over all things that take place in the course of time, and God is sovereign and active indeed in time itself, especially in the incarnation where Christ himself submitted himself to the limits to some degree of personhood and time-boundedness, if you will, to accomplish our redemption. Therefore, Psalm 98's use of imagery with respect to time sets it apart as a worship anthem for the ages. It is a worship anthem that has relevance for ages past. It has commands for the present worship of the saints. It has relevance, it has meaning and deed prophecy for times yet to come. It could just as easily be sung, Psalm 98, by King David, as we shall soon see, as by a resurrected saint on the final day, which we will see in Revelation as well. As such, Psalm 98 features worship themes and instrumentation 
fitting for significant eras of redemptive or covenant history. That's a, those are two terms I use a lot in preaching, redemptive history, and you can also refer to this idea, this concept as covenant history. What does that mean? It's the record of the events, the situations, the persons, and the plan of God to accomplish our salvation. That's what the theme of the Bible ultimately is. It's the record of all that is entailed with the accomplishment of God's glory in the salvation of man. And our point today from these passages of Scripture is that Psalm 98 features worship themes and instrumentation especially fitting for significant eras of redemptive or covenant history. So given this character of the psalm, it is echoed throughout Scripture on the lips of those who have witnessed and proclaimed the sovereign rule of our Lord and God in the original language, Yahweh. From Old Testament, Old Covenant battle campaigns, let's say, as we will reference in short order, to the advent of Jesus' incarnation and even forward to the ascension unto the realms of glory of all the saints who will one day gather at His throne. This morning, our heading will be Echoes of Psalm 98 Across History. Echoes of Psalm 98, or you could say Psalm 98, features themes and instruments fitting for, number one, Old Covenant, past. Number two, incarnation, present. Number three, covenant future. Echoes of Psalm 98 across history are recorded in Old Covenant past. And we'll consider in a moment, turn to 1 Chronicles 15, in a moment we'll consider songs of faithful kings. Songs of faithful kings that feature themes and instruments that are echoes of Psalm 98. Second major point, incarnation songs of Jesus' birth in Luke 1 and 2. Again, featuring themes from Psalm 98, and finally, covenant future. Songs of the new heavens and new earth that we see previewed, if you will, in the book of Revelation. Ascending voices of those who will ascend following the ascension of our Lord before the throne, as it were, to populate the realms of glory. Indeed, ultimately, the new heaven and new earth. What are fitting themes for us to sing at that time, in that era of redemptive history? Psalm 98 features appropriate themes, proportional instrumentation, and songs that are fitting for this, and they are indeed echoes again of Psalm 98. First of all, Psalm 98 features themes and instruments fitting for Old Covenant past. First Chronicles 15 features the story of David we referenced just briefly last week, and now we pick up in more detail. This is David, the greatest king until Jesus arguably of Israel. The reason David was great was not because uh, his personal integrity was impeccable. Indeed, we see him falling precipitously so horrible sin featured. The greatest thing about David and his rule was that he was a type of Christ. The office of David and his role as king was bound up with prophetic imagery and expectation of a great king to come. There are aspects of David's ministry, of David's office, that highlighted this, and this is one of those moments. David is recognizing the significance of the presence of God as he returns the Ark of the Covenant to a place of prominence among the people. And 1 Chronicles 15, 1 and 2, we pick up on these events. David built houses for himself in the city of David, and he prepared a place for the Ark of God and pitched a tent for it. Verse 2, Then David said that no one but the Levites 
may carry the ark of God, for the Lord had chosen them to carry the ark of the Lord and to minister to him forever. Verse 3, David assembled all Israel at Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the Lord to its place, which he had prepared for it. This is an occasion that is fitting for the themes and instrumentation of Psalm 98. This is a significant moment in redemptive history, in the life of God's people. It will be accompanied by a song of a faithful king. As we continue to see the record of these events, we jump down to verse 16 and read the following. David also commanded the chiefs of the Levites to appoint their brothers as the singers who should play loudly on musical instruments, on harps and lyre and cymbals to raise sounds of joy. Are you starting to see parallels between Psalm 98 and 1 Chronicles 15? The occasion for worship in Psalm 98 is exemplified in the returning of the ark to the people. What was the command of 98.1? Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. The Ark of the Covenant represented, it was a point of contact with the marvelous revelation of the Lord and also the marvelous things that he had done. Within that chamber was a copy of the Ten Commandments, reminding the people of the marvelous visitation of the Lord and revelation of his righteousness and that fearful, awesome, and gracious moment on Mount Sinai where he delivered his word by his very finger to his very people and record of the same was stored in that chamber, that holy place. More than this, on top of young people, what was on top of the Ark of the Covenant? There was something that was on top of it. Does anyone know? That is correct. Two angels, seraphim indeed. And anyone know what was between those two angels or something else? What was between the two angels on the mercy seat? I'm sorry, I just gave it away. It was the mercy seat itself. So think of this, something like a box, long poles to carry it, Two angels with wings, let's say, facing one another as best we can figure. Between them, the mercy seat. Now think of that area in your mind. Right there, right there was the place that God chose to reveal himself to his people. When the proper conditions were met, symbolized through temple and tabernacle worship, the very presence of the Lord, his shining glory would manifest itself on the mercy seat. Blood was shed there to pave the way. For the presence of the Lord dwelling with his people, a sacrifice had to be provided. There could be nothing more important in all of the world by way of architectural form at this time than this representation, than this means that God had graciously provided to symbolize his presence with his people. Was this a joyful occasion? To return the consciousness, the awareness, the worship, and the attention of the people to the most substantial hope for their future, where sacrificial blood was shed for their sins, atonement was provided, making way for communion with a holy God, between a holy God and a sinful people. Amen. You better believe this was a cause for joy. Therefore, as David commissions instruments and songs accordingly, we're reminded of Psalm 98, verse 4, and the command, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth, break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Why? Because he has done marvelous things. Back in 1 Chronicles 15, 
More instruments are commissioned. Verse 21, Berechiah and Elkanah were to be gatekeepers for the ark. Shebaniah, Jehoshaphat, Nathael, Amasai, Zechariah, Benaiah, and Eleazar, the priests, should blow the trumpets before the ark of God. Obed-Edom and Jehiah were to be gatekeepers for the ark. So here we have harps, lyres, cymbals, sounds of joy, and trumpets commissioned. Does that not remind us of Psalm 98, wherein we read, Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. This is a, something of a coronation ceremony or something of a welcoming parade where the sovereign of the people, the king of the nation, returns to his rightful place, his throne, and his glorified prominence among the people. Who was this king? Was it David? Now, David had enjoyed the praises of the people. You remember after he slayed Goliath, people sang to him in the streets, they said, you know, Saul has slain his thousands or whatever it was, and David his tens of thousands. So by magnifying the exploits of David, he received this hero's welcome in the streets. This was before he actually took the throne, but David was no stranger to these kind of celebrations and accolades. However, something unique happens in this moment. David himself takes a back seat in this moment. Notice as we continue to read, verse 25, So David and the elders of Israel and the commanders of thousands went to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord from the house of Obed-Edom with rejoicing. Because the Lord helped the Levites who were carrying the ark of the covenant, they sacrificed seven bulls and seven rams. Verse 27, David was clothed with a robe of fine linen, as also were all the Levites who were carrying the ark and the singers and Chenanei and the leader, the leader of the music of the singers and David wore a linen ephod. And verse uh, 28 concludes our passage by saying this, so all Israel brought up the ark of the covenant of the Lord with shouting to the sound of the horn, trumpets and cymbals and made loud music on harps and lyres. Once again, a reference to instrumentation that is listed in Psalm 98. Let's read one more verse. And as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came to the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David dancing and rejoicing, and she despised him in her heart. Why did Michael despise King David so? Because he had assumed a posture of submission. This was not a victory parade celebrating the dignity and the statesmanship and the authority and the glory of King David. David joined the other worshipers, those who were praising the Lord with joyful hearts of song and dance and instrumentation because a greater king was arriving in the presence of the people. David submitted to this greater king. Who was this greater king? Psalm 98 tells us. With trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the king the Lord. That is to say, before the King, Yahweh. Yahweh was returning, as it were, as this instrument of communion where he would appear in the presence of the people, or his presence would appear in the midst of the people when the sacrifice was provided through the temple and tabernacle worship. And so we see in Old Covenant past the song of a faithful King, David, joining the worshipers who with joyous hearts welcome the King, the Lord, 
Yahweh returning to his rightful place of rule among his people. Second example of faithful king songs of faithful kings. Turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 20. In this passage, we have another king of Israel, Jehoshaphat by name, and he is frightened. Verse 3, Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord from all the cities of Judah. They came to seek the Lord. Why is he afraid? Well, verse, uh, verse 1 tells us the Moabites and the Ammonites and with them some of the Menuhites, Menuhites came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a great multitude is coming against you from Edom. So these armies, likely no doubt greater in number than the armies that Israel could boast, this superior force, these mighty hordes are surrounding the people of God. And Jehoshaphat is afraid. So where does he turn? He, like the faithful and godly king he was in this moment, set his face to seek the Lord. And he proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. What were they doing? They were making their appeal to a greater king still. You know, kings revel in the people praying to them. The nature of man's pride seeks the accolades and seeks to steal the glory from the Lord and elevates himself or herself, whoever might enjoy that position of authority, leadership, and prominence as the one with all the answers, the one with the ability to bring peace to the nation. When is the last time you saw a leader in our land communicate real concern and fear and dread and humbly and vulnerably declare that without the help of the greatest king of all, we are doomed? And when was the last time a king of this land or a, a nation leader in our modern day decreed a nationwide fast that we might seek the good graces in favor of the only one who ultimately has the power to deliver us from our enemies? There was a time in covenant history when faithful kings did things like this. There were times even in our own national history where better presidents and leaders than we have now would do such things. And they followed in so doing the example of Jehoshaphat, which commissioned a worship service eventually to go forth in battle. Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly, we read in verse 5, of Judah in Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. Do you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants? Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? Even in this prayer, Jehoshaphat is echoing the themes of Psalm 98, wherein we read again that the Lord is king. The Lord as such ought to be recognized by the nations. Verse 2, the Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He is king, after all, of all the earth. Not, even all the, not just all the peoples, but all creation itself. Therefore, the seas and the rivers ought to roar and clap their hands. The hills ought to sing forever or sing together before the Lord, before he comes to judge the earth. Should not the kings of this world join in harmony with the voice of all nature itself? 
seas that roar, rivers that clap their hands, and hills that sing for joy, and crying out to their God and Creator, to the sustainer of the very breath in their lungs, especially when they recognize their futility to deliver themselves and their people because the enemies that surround them are greater than them? Yes, he should. And so Jehoshaphat exemplifies this in his prayer and in his praise. Back in 2 Chronicles 20, we continue to see echoes of Psalm 98 and the actions that he took. Note verse 18. Then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites of the Kohathites, and the Korites, stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. They arose early in the morning, went out into, in the, into the wilderness of Tekoa. They went out, Jehoshaphat. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, Judah, and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Believe in his prophets, believe his prophets, and you will succeed. <coughs> and when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire as they went before the army and say, Give thanks to the Lord. For his steadfast love endures forever. Again, you see this common theme. We have a king who submits to the greater king. He commissions a worship service and song appropriate for the occasion. He commands those in holy attire, these servants with instrumentation and song, to go forth before the armies and to praise the Lord. Give him thanks for his steadfast love endures forever. Verse 22, And when they began to sing and to praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, so they were routed. That means they were destroyed. They all helped to destroy one another, in fact. And so this song commissioned by the faithful king of old, Jehoshaphat, demonstrated that the Lord, he is God. And the Lord, he is the one who fights for his people. He is the one we ought to worship. He is the one worthy of the trumpet blasts of the peoples, as it were. <clears throat> the people sang to the Lord, steadfast love endures forever. A phrase that is always connected to God's covenant faithfulness. A phrase that is reiterated by these words in Psalm 98. The Lord has made known His salvation. He has revealed His righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered His steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. More echoes still. In 27 and 29, the praise continues. They return every man of Judah and Jerusalem and Jehoshaphat at their head returning to Jerusalem with joy. For the Lord had made them rejoice over their enemies. Songs of joy. They came to Jerusalem and notice what they bore with them. Harps and lyres and trumpets. The same instruments that we see in Psalm 98. Where did they go? To the house of the Lord. And the fear of God came on all the kingdoms of the countries when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. Again, Psalm 98 features themes and instruments fitting for Old Covenant past. Songs of faithful kings. Two occasions that we see in these two texts today. David and the returning of the Ark of the Covenant, the worship of the one true God among the people. Jehoshaphat 
and his victory over the enemies, recognizing that Yahweh himself is the true king, the true warrior. And in praising him, he acknowledged his care, his steadfast love, his faithfulness to deliver his people. And upon receiving that deliverance, the peoples and the king himself, bowing before the manifest presence, manifest power of Yahweh, sing a joyful song and rejoicing, accompanied by harps, lyre, and trumpets. And as a consequence of these events, the fear of God falls on the kingdoms and countries of the surrounding regions, as Psalm 98 has also declared, all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. That's point number one. Echoes of Psalm 98 across history, Old Covenant past. Point number two. Echoes of Psalm 98, incarnation present. Echoes of Psalm 98 continue through the songs of Jesus' birth. And this is the event that most prominently features the sovereign God and his activity in history. There has never been a miracle so profound as God becoming man. As we sang today, Emmanuel, God with us, dwelling among his people and taking on flesh. The word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. And so it is fitting that those whose eyes are open to this reality by increasing incremental degree begin to break forth into song. We'll just touch upon Mary's song, the Magnificat, again this morning. We did so briefly last week. We'll touch upon it again today. Lord willing, next week we'll perhaps cover three more songs. Zechariah sings, or at least gives poetry and prophecy in chapter 1, verse 68 through 79 of Luke's gospel. Again, in Luke's gospel, the angels sing upon the revelation of Jesus the day he was born, chapter 2, verses 9 through 14. And then Simeon's song again in Luke, chapter 2, verses 25 through 32. In Luke, for our purposes of our message this morning, let us consider again Mary's song, often called the Magnificat, Luke 1, 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Already we see echoes of Psalm 98. Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. She is following the instruction, the call to worship of Psalm 98, 1, wherein we are encouraged, O sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done marvelous things. And it is hard to imagine anything so marvelous as becoming the mother of God in flesh. When Mary realized upon the realization that she was pregnant with the Lord of glory, who would save her and his people from their sin, she did what Psalm 98 verse 1 instructs. She broke forth into new song. Again, what is a new song? We rec- it is to recognize with appropriate and proportional praise each new occasion to worship the Lord, our God. What more occasion for worship is there in all of covenant history? Well, there are so many, but perhaps among the greatest is the incarnation itself. And so it is proper that these moments be accompanied by song. And so Mary offers her praise to the Lord. She goes on, verse 46. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. 
What is Mary recognizing in these words? She is recognizing what the author of Psalm 98 had declared. God has done marvelous things. What marvelous things has he done in the case of the incarnation? Among them, he has exalted the humble estate of the lowly. He has picked the least likely candidate among the judgments of men, Mary, this obscure and humble servant, to exalt with the privilege of bearing his son. He has looked on the estate of the lowly. Yes, we can relate to this. He has looked on the estate of the wretched, decrepit, depraved, and dead sinner. And he has exalted a privileged status of one day ruling and reigning at his right hand. And all this is accomplished through the work of redemption, including this moment in time, God's activity in history, where the incarnation took place on the stage of humanity. And so we should join Mary, should we not? In appropriate and proportional praise. Because he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. And now all generations will call us blessed along with Mary. Why? Because at that moment, when every knee bows and every tongue confesses, all creation, all the world, all humanity will realize that there is no hope. There is no future. There is no exaltation outside of Christ's redemption purchased for us. Mary goes on, verse 49, verse 50. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the humble, those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. She continues on this theme, recalling the language of Psalm 98.1, which told us his right hand and his holy arm. He has done marvelous things by his right hand and his holy arm. What kind of marvelous things? He has reached into history by the right hand of his Holy Spirit, moved upon this virgin, caused her to conceive and bear a son. And so the mighty things that the Lord has done for Mary, the power of his right hand is shown in the incarnation. He has shown this, the strength of his right arm by scattering the proud and the thoughts of their hearts, bringing down the mighty from their thrones and exalting those of humble estate. Mary recognized the significance of the incarnation meant that the days of self-aggrandizement, the days of self-exaltation of the kings of the earth are numbered and they will be brought down. There was a king, Herod, who tried to stamp out this promise of a superior king, a king over him among them. And so what does he do? Kids, what did Herod do to try to get rid of Jesus? Do you remember? You remember, was Herod a good guy or a bad guy? He was a bad guy, Herod was. And what did he try to do? Yes, he tried to kill Jesus, the baby, by uh, destroying every child under two in the region which Christ was born. Why was Herod moved and such pathological uh, rebellion against the Lord Almighty to wage this campaign because he knew that his days were numbered, that the prophecy perhaps was true, that a superior king was born, and his authority and his rule, his tyranny was threatened by one who was born in a lowly manger, but one who stooped so low to take on the form of mere humanity as God in flesh, and to wield in the course of his ministry and the course of his rule, 
a death blow to every other false exaltation of authority or power, sovereignty, rule <clears throat> that mankind has ever boasted. He has scattered in this act of incarnation the proud and the thoughts of their heart. And their days are numbered. Their throne and their rule is doomed. Why? Because in this act of incarnation and through his activity in history, he has and will bring down the mighty from their thrones and exalt those of humble estate. Psalm 98 exalted these themes and accompanied the praise with instruments that declared the same. After all, a trumpet blast was the sound of authority that accompanied the uh, royal presence of the king, and it would call people's attention by this thunderous blast to their uh, authority over them. And they, it, would command, it would compel the people to bow before the presence of their sovereign. And so it is fitting that these trumpet blasts would accompany the reception of the king himself, the king of kings, Jesus Christ. There were few who recognized him as king. We sing these days in our Christmas hymns songs like Jesus, Lord, at thy birth. There were very few who recognized when they looked upon this helpless infant that they were staring into the eyes of the Lord and the King of the universe. But for those whom, whom their eyes were opened by the Holy Spirit, Zechariah, Simeon, uh, and uh, Mary among them, they saw in the face of this baby the King of kings. And so it is fitting that the themes of Psalm 98 would be echoed upon the incarnation. Because in the words of Mary, after all, he as she goes on to say, verse 54, has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And so she knew in this moment that the covenant promises to Abraham and all God's people were coming true in her very womb. This was the salvation that the Lord has worked for him, that his right hand and his holy arm that were echoed and proclaimed in Psalm 98 had prophesied. Verse 2, the Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed it, his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. And Mary had, to this date, has experienced the greatest proof of God's steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel in opening her womb, as it were, to bear the very son of God, the very son of Abraham the very son of David, the significant son who would declare ultimate victory over the ultimate enemy and every other enemy in between. Final point this morning, echoes of Psalm 98 across history. We see them in Old Covenant past in the songs of faithful kings. We've seen them by one example this morning, incarnation presence, present, the songs that accompanied Jesus' birth. Thirdly, we see the themes and instrumentation of Psalm 98 accompanied new accompanying new covenant future as we hear a sneak peek of the songs of the new heavens and new earth in the book of Revelation. Turn there with me if you would, beginning in Revelation 5. <clears throat> it is often said that the book of Revelation com contains more allusions and references to the Old Testament than any other book in the New Testament. Among these references and allusions are numerous echoes 
of Psalm 98. Among them we have recorded in Revelation 5 these words and the accompanying ideas that, re- that remind us of the great psalm in question. Verse 8, And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So we see again reference to appropriate and proportional worship that will be offered to the Lamb on account of his majestic, the majestic things that he has done. And so we see the elders holding instruments of worship, indeed, the prayers of the saints and harps. Goes on, verse 9. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. And as you recall, Psalm 98 again had said, O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. Upon the fullness and inauguration of the manifest kingdom of Messiah himself, new songs are offered, and they are recorded in Revelation chapter 5. They sang a new song, recognizing the marvelous deeds of their Messiah, praising Him, worshiping Him. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, singing to Jesus Christ. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. Jesus Christ, in His sovereign authority, through the Great Commission and the Gospel, is ransacking the nations. He is occupying every nook and cranny, every corner and crevice of the earth. Every declaration of authority by kings and rulers and people in authority will one day bow by offering up against their own will and wishes, in many cases, a representative people who will be incorporated into the kingdom of God through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. He is ransoming for himself a people from every kingdom under heaven, from every tribe every language, every people, and every nation. Is this not a marvelous thing that our Lord Jesus Christ is doing even today? As his gospel goes forth, consider the example of Ethiopia. The Thompsons will be leaving to help support our missionaries over there in Ethiopia. That's a corner of the earth, as it were. It's a distant place from the perspective of our residents here. As the gospel goes forth through faithful ministers and missionaries to reach those peoples and tribes even within that nation, what are we seeing? We're seeing the power of Jesus' blood to ransom a people for him from every tribe, language, people, and nation. Is this not occasion worthy of a song? Much as we see here in Revelation 5, praising the Lamb who was slain for the power of his blood, to gather for himself citizens for his kingdom from across history and across the world. Indeed it is. There is an ascending, there is an ascendancy of voices that join the chorus. As uh, Revelation 5 continues, begins with the four living creatures and the 24 elders. But these voices are soon joined by a ransom people from every tribe and nation says, you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard around the throne, the living and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels. You see more voices joining this chorus still, numbering how many? Myriads of myriads in thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who is slain 
to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. More voices will join still. Verse 13, And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. Is this not a fulfillment of Psalm 98 where we see the voices joining the chorus of praise? Sing to the Lord with lyre, melody, trumpet, horn, make a joyful noise. But not just people, not just instruments are to join in this great worship service. But verse 7 continues, let the seas roar and all that fills it. The world and all who dwell therein, let the rivers clap their hands, let the hills sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. We have a new song. We again have marvelous things extolled. We have a revealing of the righteousness of the Lord in the sight of the nations, as Psalm 98 prophesies. And we have every creature under heaven, earth, and under the earth joining in this great praise song. Revelation 14. Here, just a couple verses include another example of the kind of worship that is echoed and prefigured in Psalm 98. Themes and instruments again are employed. 14.1. I looked and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. Again, Jesus Christ pictured. And his sacrificial work of redemption. And with him, 144,000 who had his name and his Father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder. Again, ascendancy of voices. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing, what? A new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except for the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. And this picture language 144,000 is a way of using facts and figures, indeed numerical values, to illustrate the fullness of God's people. The commentator tells, and I believe rightly so, that multiples of 12 indicate an exponential harvest of all the people of God. There were 12 tribes of Israel, but multiply 12 by 12, and what do you get? Anyone know? What's 12 times 12? What's 12 times 12? Math whizzes in the room. 144. What is 1,200 times 1,200? 14,400. What's 12,000 times 12,000? 144,000. So you see, 12 is representative of the people of God. All the tribes of Israel, when present, totaled 12. But, if you, but by multiples of 12 times 12 and so forth, we see pictured here the fullness of the people of God. 144,000 in this symbol language which echo forth praise to his name. That is to say that there will be so many. In fact, we should assume too many to count if we read the language that's gone before, myriads of myriads, multitudes of multitudes, harps, so to speak, in hand, singing the songs of Moses and of the Lamb, recognizing the history of the works of God, his great and amazing deeds, the marvelous things that he has done, the just and the true, visiting this world with righteousness, welcoming the king of all the nations, all the kings, all the nations coming to worship him. And this 
brings up our final text this morning, Revelation 15, 2 through 4. <clears throat> the message continues. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image, and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass, with harps of God in their hands. Again, Psalm 98 allusions. And they sing the song of Moses and the servant of God and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds. Marvelous things he has done, we recall. O Lord God, the Almighty, the Lord, the King, as he is introduced in Psalm 98. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Psalm 98 tells us that he is coming and will rule with justice and righteousness. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. And so Psalm 98 tells us that the righteousness of the Lord will be and is being revealed to all the nations. And back in Revelation 15, 4, for your righteous acts have been revealed. So you see, the ascending voices of Revelation 5 <clears throat> join with all of the elect in Revelation 14. And those who conquered the beast in Revelation 15 with proportion and appropriate worship, singing new songs upon the occasion of the revelation of the mighty acts of our Lamb, Jesus Christ, who is slain, and His power to rule and reign, and the advance and the power and authority of His kingdom as it is continually manifest through history as He ransoms for Himself a people from its distant corners. And in so doing, and as we praise the Lord when we gather here in the assembly of the saints, each Lord's Day morning, we join the song of Moses. We join the song of those who've gone before. We join in the worship of the Lamb. We recognize the history of the works of God, His amazing and great deeds, His righteousness, His justice, His true and holy word. We recognize Him as the King of the nations. We receive Him as our Lord and Sovereign, and we do so, as it were, with the new songs that the Scriptures provide for us as appropriate worship, recognizing these great occasions. Let me close by asking this question. In our day, does Psalm 98 feature themes and instruments fitting for our moment in redemptive history? That is to say, ought we not echo Psalm 98 in our era because the marvelous things that the Lord has done for us and is doing for us and will do for us are pictured in this great song? Yes, indeed. Psalm 98 features themes and instruments fitting for these moments in redemptive history. It most certainly holds out themes fitting for our day as well. So let us join in harmony with David, with Jehoshaphat, with the author of Psalm 98, with Mary, with Zechariah, with the angels, with Simeon, with the elders at the throne of the Lord, with the ransomed peoples from every tribe, tongue, and nation, with the living creatures, with the myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands circling the throne of glory. Let us join with every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and the rest of the 144,000, the beast conquering people of God. And let us do so singing, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Let us close in prayer. O Lord, we thank you.
for the call to worship that we hear from your holy word. We thank you for the demonstration of your sovereignty that is recorded from covenant ages of old up through your incarnation to our day and beyond. We pray that you would stir our hearts through the proclamation of your word for appropriate response, joyful celebration of praise and worship that is proportional to what you have done and the marvelous things that you have accomplished for your redeemed. For your redeemed, Lord, I pray upon your return that there would be a thriving church, Lord, with blemishes increasingly erased, wrinkles and spots increasingly smoothed out, recognizing your great deeds, that the purity and expression and power and joy and enduring quality of their worship might improve more and more each day and would serve to receive ultimately at your second coming, the great King of all the earth. I pray that the message, the intent, the theme and instrumentation of Psalm 98 would inspire and encourage us to receive our King this day. And should you tarry, Lord, to maintain that heart of expectation that upon the fullness of the elect coming in, you will come and ransom for yourself once and for all a bride who will gather before your throne and worship you forever without end. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.